This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Nicole, how can I possibly have faded that out? <laughs> Jim Henson there was so gutted when he passed away. Kermit's still with us though. Now I'm caught with a frog in my throat as we go into Zero G, episode 1174. And our title is The Pun That Won the West. And the podcast title is Red Poddo. You hear the fluttering of Russian espionage overhead. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to look at Red Sparrow today and also the Spyrig Brothers' new horror film, Winchester, which you've been looking forward to. Sad to say, didn't pan out quite the way I wanted it to. Never mind. It's all movies. The Oscars are running out there as we speak or perhaps crawling along depending on how slow the uh, the ceremony is going today. I don't think I'll be spoiling any of it apart from uh, mentioning the fact that there's quite a bit of stuff in there, stuff, (laughs) that is of relevance to Zero G with a, a big freeway tie there for a lot of the different awards between three films that pretty much fall either squarely or obtusely into the zero-G genre. I mean, apart from the uh, your Dunkirks and your Darkest Hours and your posts in the uh, historical uh, vein, we've also got the definite science fiction film The Shape of Water and the sci-fi horror film Get Out as well in there for contention. I do notice that in some of the uh, technical awards, you know, cinematography, special visual effects, uh, that kind of thing. You do get the usual players of one of the Star Wars movies and even a Guardians of the Galaxy movie as well. I noticed that we have up there lead actor contenders, Daniel Kaluuya for Get Out and Gary Oldman for The Darkest Hour. Both um, solid people to be up in there for the bidding of the Oscars and Sally Hawkins from The Shape of Water and Frances McDormand from Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, that latter being the best Coen Brothers movie. It's not actually a Coen Brothers movie that I've seen for a while. And, of course, you've got Sam Rockwell and Woody Harrelson from that film as well in there for supporting actor and Richard Jenkins from The Shape of Water. Where is Doug Jones? I asked myself, where is Doug Jones in this listing? Surely you would think that he would be in in the uh, in the lists for his marvelous characterization of Charlie A. Tuna in The Shape of Water. Although I do have a, a soft spot for Alison Janney and I Tonya from uh, our old friend from the West Wing. Ah, oh, the West Wing that isn't. Oh, never mind. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm wondering about the best director, Christopher Nolan for Dunkirk, um, Jordan Peele for Get Out, or Guillermo del Toro for The Shape of Water. A nice 
field there for Zero G to hoe later on. And I just noticed that they've got Scott Frank and James Mangold and Michael Green for best adapted screenplay for Logan which means that they're talking about a screenplay adapted from a comic book or from comic books. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> uh, go it. I don't know whether or not they'll be able to beat Aaron Sorkin out for Molly's Game, you know, because it is Aaron Sorkin. Ah, well. And even there with the uh, original screenplays, it's still down to Get Out, The Shape of Water and Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri as, as prime runners in there. I notice all of the other ones. Well, we'll, we'll find out, won't we, next week how... They've gone on zero G. But you'll know by then. You'll know even as I speak, really, if you're following it now. But notice that I did not give any spoilers to those of you, the film buffs out there who might be waiting for it all to unspool tonight on television or some such. Hmm. I'll I'll do a pick here. If I had to pick between costume designs, for example, for Beauty and the Beast, Darkest Hour, The Shape of Water or Victoria and Abdul, I would definitely go for The Shape of Water just because the um, Charlie costume for the Gill Man is so gloriously realised. And, yeah, and there's some CGI's in there as well. CGI guys, but not as many as uh, usual, considering what the, uh, the director's intention was for that one. Now, I um, also wanted to... Uh, go off on a tangent now to Red Sparrow, which is a new film just come out uh, this weekend. And we've had all manner of takes on the spy movie in the not-too-distant past. Uh, Atomic Blonde, I think, most recently. Um, The Man from UNCLE. Kingsman 2. There's a new Bond movie out next year and... The long-awaited Black Widow movie is now in the works. Mind you, we're assuming that the Black Widow movie is going to be a spycraft-heavy movie. It may not be. It could be just how Natasha spends her time with a cat when she's not out avenging. <laughs> that be a hoot. Actually, is in the comic books. Um, she does spend quite a bit of time with a stray cat that she's adopted. <laughs> That would just be fun. I'd just like to see what, what how Natasha handles normal life uh, when she's actually operating her cover, <laughs> if she still has that now that um, the Civil War has blown through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, there was um, quite a few classic spy movies going back through history. I myself really enjoyed the... Um, well, not perhaps the movie, <laughs> but the television series Callan back in the 1970s with Edward Woodward. An amazing series that incredibly grittily hard-edged and low-rent too. Fairly um, inexpensive show being a British one from that particular period. But moving on to Red Sparrow, which is a 2018 US film directed by Francis Lawrence, who we know because he directed the three films after the Hunger Games initial movie in the four film series, which also starred Jennifer Lawrence, who's the main character actor (laughs) in this film. Um, Lawrence, that is Francis Lawrence, no relation, also did I Am Legend 
2007, Constantine in 2005. He was the assistant director of the 1993 time travel comedy Marching Out of Time, which I believe had soldiers from one era pitching into the future. And he also did um, directed episodes of that 2009 Kings series, you know, the one that was um, basically the Bible set in an alternative reality kind of United States. <laughs> it didn't last very long and I think, oh, what was that? That was on, usually played on it like after midnight here in Australia when they had it. Before that, he was a music video director. Now, he, Francis Lawrence has also written the screenplay for Red Sparrow um, as well as uh, working with some other people. Uh, Justin Haith also contributed to the script uh, whose work was seen on Snitch and Revolutionary Road and the Lone Ranger. But we won't hold the latter against him. Oh, and A Cure for Wellness too. Um, now, this is all based, the story for Red Sparrow, on a 2013 novel by Jason Matthews, who's a former CIA operative. And although I haven't read it, I've read reviews, which is just about the same. <laughs> no, it's not. But anyway, I gather that um, this book is one that uh, highlights the mundane aspects of intelligence gathering, uh, which I am all uh, approving of to um, to have as a, a as a style for your plot because it's procedural, really, and we all love procedural and most of genre, all genre. Everything's a genre, <laughs> is uh, down to procedural of one sort or another. And um, the main character in the book of Red Sparrow actually was had uh, synesthesia and she ha- was able to um, see through people by seeing their emotions in colour, in colours. So um, they've dropped that aspect almost entirely from uh, the film. It's waved over the plot with a uh, a knowing sort of ex- phrase where they say, oh, you always were able to see through people, Dominica. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's enough, really. Okay, so it's set in contemporary times, so we're not going back to the 80s like Atomic Blonde so effectively did, uh, or indeed... Um, the Man from Uncle, which went back to the Cold War of the 60s, I seem to recall. Was it 70s? Ah, well, either way, it doesn't matter much. This film is set now. And essentially, um, the main character played by Jennifer Lawrence is Dominika Egorova. And she's a, um, a Russian ballerina. She's doing it tough. as as prima ballerinas in the Bolshoi have been known to do. Um, She's living in a state-provided flat with her ailing mother who needs a lot of um, home care. Uh, And she's doing all right, really, but until she has an unfortunate accident on stage, which is uh, actually, for my money, the the most uh, wince-making part of the whole film in terms of the... Um, obvious spycraft torture, the signature torture that the uh, the Russian intelligence agencies get up to in this film. Well, that accident is really ouch because it's a real one and you sort of go, oh. Mm. Anyway, after she suffered her unfortunate accident, and actually some of the events in this film make me wonder whether it was totally an accident. If you do see it, um, what do you think about that after you've um, watched it? Were they actually trying to recruit her before? 
I don't know. Anyway, after the accident, she's no longer able to dance and she gets recruited by her awful uncle, definitely not the man from UNCLE that you would expect to see in um, an American spy film. Uh, He's a hideous character and he grooms her to become a red sparrow, which is basically... um, a seduction officer could be a man, could be a woman, but there's a whole damn school set up to turn people into weapons of the state, and it's run by um, none other than Charlotte Rampling, who's <laughs> we've seen not in a whole lot of genre productions, but um, you know, you go back to the old days of Zardos or um, jump into modern times with um, uh, Melancholia uh, or. Um, you know, a few other things, but not too many. She actually makes a really good matron. Now, I haven't mentioned Jennifer Lawrence's performance yet, really. She is spot on. Um, She really inhabits the role, gets in there and basically acts her little heart out with a a cold-eyed, calculating stare for the most part that really is actually, does give you the idea that she's looking right through you when she does it directly at the screen every now and then. Uh, She actually is the best part of this film. Um, She's been the best part of many films, actually, especially in the uh, the genre, um, playing the young mystique in the rebooted X-Men movies, uh, in Passengers opposite Chris Pat, or, of course, Katniss Everdeen in the Hunger Games series. She's really a a joy to behold. Uh, And I want to see more of her, not as much as I actually see in a physical sense in this film uh, because as I said it is a, um, a Red Sparrow is uh, is exactly basically a, a kind of a black widow uh, in terms of um, their profession and it is a confronting film here. I have no idea uh, why uh, one of the people watching it in the cinema when I was there had a kid in there, like a, a very, very young child. I mean, it was violent enough um, to really just make you go, oh. But, yeah, there's a lot of sexual violence in this film too. Uh, and, as I said, extremely confronting the way it's all set out and fairly cold-blooded. Uh, and as much as I hate to say say this, that actually is um, a feature of this film. They're not pulling any punches here in terms of all of that kind of thing. Uh, and that is to the film's credit and also to its discredit. It's actually something complicated that you could unpack at leisure. But I don't have that much time here. Uh, just give you a little bit of a warning there if, in case that's um, something that's going to disturb you either way. Actually, you'd probably be just as much disturbed by the physical violence in this film, which is very hard-edged indeed. Joel Edgerton plays opposite her as Nate Nash, who's a, um, a CIA operative. He's got actually a fairly thankless role. He's playing kind of the love interest, really, for this film. Uh, and it doesn't um, really gel. There are reasons for that, though, which I won't go into. He does a, he does a good job with what he's been um, given for this film. Jeremy Irons is always dependable, especially when he's playing a Russian general, and so is Kiaran Hines playing another Russian intelligence muckamuck in the film. Now, I think this film doesn't quite work for me. Uh, it may Individual uh, mileage may vary on the way to Moscow. Um, as we see uh, the Red Sparrow go through her training, and I actually think they kind of uh, could have done more with the training part of this film because uh, she's kind of taken out of that and lifted out into the field way too quickly for us to... Um, to have any idea of the, how much more 
the training would comprise. And as I said, it's a procedural spycraft movie and you want to know what's going on there, or perhaps not. It's a bit prurient and voyeuristic in this film and it does disturb and discomfort you, which it should do. All of these things, um, actually, they do deserve credit for going there because, you know, it's it's not going to be as... um, as uh, glamorous as, say, uh, The Man from Uncle or uh, any of the other more lighter-hearted spy-type movies. Even the Bond movies aren't as hard as this one. But here's the, uh, <laughs> the Avenger in the room. You've got to look at this and think, okay, Dominica is a, a ballet performer who after an injury becomes a lethal secret agent, you know, there is that whole Black Widow thing running there. And you will spend a chunk of the of the film, if you've seen Atomic Blonde as well, and putting together all of the performances of Scarlett Johansson in the role of the Black Widow, trying to sort of push those out of your head, those expectations, which is kind of a pity because this film does stand alone in its own right. Uh, but I don't actually think they managed to nail where they're going in this film. Uh, gritty reality aside, it's not mundane enough in a lot of instances. There's no sort of um, John le Carre, Tinker Taylor, t- Tinker Taylor soldier <laughs> spy. <laughs> Is that how it goes? I don't know. It's been a while since I saw that one. Um, but yeah, I don't think they nail that procedural, that mundane procedural quite as well as they might. There are some several long coincidences in this story that um, make you doubt the spy craft of anyone at all because they're all a bit of um, a mess up except for the Red Sparrow. Uh, and I can't really say it all worked out for me in the end, although there is some um, interesting uh, plot twists along the way that I thought did help and raise my my um, opinion of the film. But I thought that they were kind of inserted in a fairly clumsy way and I don't think it really got um, got where it was going to in the end. Uh, a bit basic in some respects too, as I said with the uh, the training element there, but some, also some other things. Nevertheless, um, it is uh, worth a look. It's uh, Red Sparrow. It's out now. I would give it on the zero-G rating of yeah, nah, or maybe. Um, yeah, maybe because I can't just get behind it. It doesn't quite go where I felt like they were aiming for. Still, um, A for effort on their part with Red Sparrow. This is Cory Doctorow, author of Little Brother, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, and the forthcoming novel Walkaway, and you are listening to Zero G on 3RRR. Rob Jand here on Zero G and... I'm flying solo today. Our co-host, Mika McHugh, is under the weather. So, you know, we don't do Cheerios very often, but since it's one of our own, I hope you are feeling better today, Megan. Okay, now we're rolling along here too. Uh, Just a quick little look at... um, Something that, uh, no, actually, I'll, I've changed my mind. I'm just going to reset here. I'm going to have another movie at the moment. Um, just been to see Winchester, uh, also known as Winchester, the house that ghosts built. It's uh, just come out. 
supernatural horror film. It's directed by the Spy Rig Brothers, that is to say Michael and Peter, and uh, written by them and Tom Vaughan. Now, you may have known that this one had been filming partly in Melbourne, around the traps. They went to uh, Como and Ripponlea. Helen Moran is one of the stars of the film. She plays Sarah Winchester. And this is um, the story of the Winchester Mansion in San Jose in California. Uh, it's set in 1906, thereabouts. And essentially is the uh, the ghost story entry into the Spyrick Brothers' ongoing uh, odyssey through the various tropes of science fiction, fantasy and horror filmmaking, including their really fine zombie film, Undead. Very laconic piece, that one. Daybreakers, their vampire procedural story. Predestination and Jigsaw, the most recent um, horror movie. I wish I could say better things about this film because I was really stoked to see it. It is set in the Winchester mansion and Sarah Winchester, well, she was the uh, the widow of that Winchester. No, not Sam and Dean <laughs> or any of them, uh, but William Winchester, one of the um, manufacturers of the famous gun that won the West, the Winchester repeating rifle. And in that respect, you kind of think maybe this film has got a bit of a timely thing to say about American culture. And it does, actually. The message gets a little bit muddied along the way, but it's still there quite strongly. Uh, in fact, this whole story, actually, I believe, has a really strong storyline that runs through it. Um, Sarah Winchester is continuously adding on to the Winchester mansion and by that I mean she's having rooms constantly dis- constructed and deconstructed 24-7, essentially. So, what's the problem with this? Why is there not a better ghost story to be had out of this at this time? Well, I was on board for this one because of the Winchester house and because the Spyrick brothers are pretty good at their procedural. But in this one, they seem to be a little bit off their game. The mansion has hundreds of rooms, some of them hidden, lots of interconnecting doors, doors that lead nowhere, stairwells that just stop abruptly. It's a real Escher sort of a place, uh, almost multidimensional. And so it proves, since this is actually a a ghost story where the Scooby gang are not going to show up and pull the rubber mask off the, um, the head of the, uh, the butler who's been trying to get his hands on the inheritance all along. This is not that sort of story. Is it scary? It's a horror movie. It's got ghosts in it. Yes, it is occasionally scary. Um, but after a while, you just sort of realise what's going on and you think, oh, this is not really going to frighten me anymore. No, it's not. Uh, but there are some um, some moments where you do jump a little. Unfortunately, they repeat those moments several times. They're using the old um, surprise boo joke, and that gets a bit old after a while. Um, 
I think they really should invested have invested a whole lot more in the fascinating geography of the Winchester Mansion. Um, they, I don't think they ever really managed to sell it properly to me, at least in the audience. Uh, I also um, didn't get lost enough in it, really, um, which is kind of a shame because it's that kind of place. And I think that there was a, a real possibility to get yourself into the ultimate sort of where am I? in this whole vast edifice kind of thing. You know, I mean, something like, um, I'm trying to think of other uh, multi-roomed horror stories, maybe like The Cube, somewhere along those lines. Um, You know, it just uh, doesn't doesn't click for some reason, in spite of having what I thought was a good, strong storyline there. Anyway, Helen Moran, of course, is wonderful as Sarah Winchester. She hasn't done as much um, science fiction and fantasy as I would have liked to have to have done. Um, I remember her in the uh, Fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu back in the 1980s or, of course, in uh, John Borman's Excalibur. She was even in a Twilight Zone episode once, Dead Woman's Shoes. That's uh, one of the new Twilight Zone incarnations. And, of course, it's done the voice of the Snow Queen back in 1995 and the voice of the Deep Thought computer in the 2005 Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. But here she's playing it pretty much straight down the line as Sarah Winchester. Um, She's quite believable in the role. I don't have any particular problems with it. I don't think she's given as much as she should have been for it. Uh, But nevertheless, um, this is her entry into the ghost story genre and good honour. Jason Clarke plays a psychiatrist uh, called Eric Price um, there are lots of Australian actors peppered throughout this story since partly was um, filmed here. Seen him before in Death Race in 2008 and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, Terminator Genesis and so on. Uh, actually kind of like the way he played this. He's um, affected by a, a bit of a substance abuse problem and his own personal tragedies in the story uh, and that actually plays quite well, again, into a fairly solid storyline that, that should have actually worked better than it did. Sarah Snook, um, the Spyrig's muse from Predestination, appears in a fairly thankless role as a mother of one of the um, Winchester children. Um, and I can, I can praise her body English in this. She doesn't get too much else to say, but her body language in this is excellent. <laughs> um, somebody else who popped up in here that I hadn't expected, Angus Sampson playing one of the, uh, the hangers-on on the Winchester Mansion, who, of course, we know from A Hundred Bloody Acres, the, uh, the brothers Colin and Cameron Cairns' particular horror project. Well, there are, as we usually say on Zero-G, many other people in this film, but we don't really need to get into that. Um, the recreation of the Winchester Mansion, using parts of Flip Rip and Lee and Como and other houses, I imagine, as well, um, using some uh, model work and computer graphics uh, is is fairly well done. But um, like I said, they really should have been able to make more of that geography than they actually have. And what do I mean by that? Well, I, I kind of hold up... Um, for example, Ridley Scott's Alien movie, the original one, uh, as a benchmark for horror movie geography 
because in that they built the Nostromo sets contiguous, uh, sorry, continuous, so you could walk from one into the other and so that the actors actually had to kind of inhabit and live inside of it. Uh, it made for a very claustrophobic film and it also gave you this sense that you knew where you were at all times, like uh, the bridge is just next to this bit of corridor which leads down to that area and it's an unconscious kind of thing but it didn't really gel for me in Winchester and I felt it should have. Ah. Okay, the um, the story itself, I, I think, is uh, quite laudably anti-gun, really, uh, at the end of the day, if you uh, pick it apart. And you do have some time to do that. There is another saving grace for this film, apart from some good performances. It's only 99 minutes long. It's actually quite... Uh, it scoots quite along quite handily, so it doesn't really wear out its welcome as much as it might have if it had had another half hours tacked onto it. So, you know, at least they knew, knew to be brief in how they put it together. It's a really a real shame, and um, I'm not quite sure what went wrong with it along the way because I know that they can do really good films. I mean, Predestination especially. Anyway, that's Winchester, and... Um, I think uh, that's really enough about it. Now, I give it a... uh, I won't go for a straight nah because it does actually have a a fairly strong storyline that I think is worthwhile. I'd go for a maybe on this one. And we are here on Zero G. Rob Jan still here until 2 o'clock. And I hope you are too enjoying this autumnal day. I'm not quite sure what the weather's like out there today. I wore a coat as usual. (laughs) It's just one of those things. I mean, my geek coat. Now, I went back and had a look at uh, some of Ursula K. Le Guin's back catalogue of work. As you know, she passed away. We memorialised her on Zero G a couple of weeks ago. And I realised that either I couldn't remember all that much of her work, or I had just plain hadn't read it. Uh, and I think this is actually the case of this one, which is called Rokanon's World, and that's R-O-C-A-N-N-O-N apostrophe S, Rokanon's World. And um, this is actually one that um, my partner Gail had in her collection, and it's from 1966. Well, this one, this edition was 1972, so you probably won't find this one around anymore in, in an imprint called uh, Star, British um, one. And it's only uh, 122 pages, which was quite common back then. When you go over to the local news agents, I buy a book for 50 cents. <laughs> Maybe a dollar if it was uh, a bit more substantial. And that would be it. <laughs> so it's like, oh, my goodness. Actually, this one might have cost a bit more. Yeah, uh, $3.75 in the US. I was thinking about the, uh, the mid-60s rather than the early 70s. All right, so um, you probably won't find this particular copy, but uh, it's probably still in print otherwise or available as an e-book, that old standby or that new standby for us. And... It's uh, an iconic book in its men- in many ways. Um, it's interesting for Ursula K. Le Guin from her point of view because you can see her wrestling with how to blend together. And this is like her uh, literary debut back in the day. Uh, she's trying to blend together world building, um, her own 
um, personal background, um, with um, ethnography. So she's actually quite strong there. She's trying to put in a, a, a kind of a fantasy science in a, in a science fiction world because there's a number of different races on Rokanan's world who actually do kind of respond, correspond to your traditional high fantasy elves and dwarves and men and uh, other, other creatures in the, uh, in the familiar trope set. Um, this is uh, set in her uh, Hainish cycle universe, but still, as I said, it is a very uh, fantasy kind of novel. Um, there are flying beasts that the characters can jump onto like dragons or uh, perhaps like um, some kind of flying dinosaurs or cats. <laughs> I, t- I sort of t- thought of them as cats, but never mind. Uh, that's just me. Uh, and um, this, this, there are two sequels, Planet of Exile and City of Illusion in the, the Hainish novels cycle. And this is the one where she um, coined the word ansible, for a faster-than-light communicator, which, of course, has been used throughout a lot of science fiction uh, as a kind of a, a handy plot device like the transporter. Uh, kind of necessary when you're dealing with um, interstellar distances. And the plot is actually quite simple. This is a, a planet called uh, Formalhaut 2, and it's um, been settled by human beings and other races, but... There's a problem. The League of All Worlds, while they're running a survey on this planet, is jumped by some aggressor forces and their ship is destroyed and Mr. Rokanen is kind of um, stuck there as the lone human survivor and has to make his way across the planet to do various sorts of things. Now, what um, uh, distinguishes this novel is Le Guin's use of... Um, uh, the fantasy folklore set into this context. So she's got a few little stories to tell that kind of hive off there, rather like The Left Hand of Darkness, actually. Not as many as that one, though. Um, so she's blending a number of different things here. You can see how she's um, toggling up her skills, and I think that's actually quite useful. This is still a... Uh, I don't know if you call it a major novel, but it's still a novel that you'd really want to have a look at if you want to uh, get into Ursula K. Le Guin's writing and she is worth reading this is a person who belongs up there with Heinlein and Asimov and Clark and Bradbury um, so you know when you think of those great classic science fiction writers you should also think of Ursula K Le Guin as well it's Rokanen's world and yeah it is available in all sorts of different formats now but uh, back in 1966 it was first published as an ace double now if you've never seen an ace double it's a small pocket sized uh, book with two novels or novellas, quite long stories in them anyway, and you could actually start reading on one side of the book, then flip it over and read the other story from the other end, and it was quite a popular format back then. You can still find them in second-hand shops. I don't know if you can find this particular one, but uh, they do pop up every now and then in some of the um, bookshops like uh, just Sinks, uh, ooh, Cybers, for example. Um, they have a, a very deep science fiction collection there, including many ace doubles that I've seen. Um, uh, and so on. But anyway, um, this is Rokanen's world, Ursula K. Le Guin. I do recommend it as a, a very handy little read if you happen to be into Ursula K. Le Guin or would like to. This is one of those books that um, allows you to uh, access her writing if you've never actually read any before. And, of course, being the first novel, well, you know, 
logically, you perhaps should start there, especially if you're going to read the uh, the Hainish cycle of books. Hi, I'm Lindsay Morgan. And I'm Reg Morgan. Uh, no, we're actually Colin and Cameron Cairns, writers, directors of 100 Bloody Acres, and you're listening to Zero G. They're not psycho killers. They're just community radio broadcasters. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G. Now, as we come up to the uh, the hour, I thought I would um, just talk to you about uh, somebody else who has passed away, unfortunately. And it kind of... Um, it kind of is relevant to the uh, the Winchester <laughs> movie that we were talking about. In a way, in a way, only well, only in a zero G way, <laughs> technically speaking. Now, um, the person in question has played a character called Winchester, and of course, that is Charles Emerson. Winchester the Third. You may know that character if you're a MASH fan. Back in the 1970s, he um, was played by David Ogden Styers, who's passed away in his 70s and uh, left behind quite a bit of work that's of relevance to Zero G. Now, uh, he was... Um, a US American actor and conductor and he conducted in over in 70 orchestras in over 100 appearances he was uh, also the resident conductor of the Newport Symphony Orchestra strangely enough um, now he is uh, also the man behind and this is one of his early sorts of things the uh, the announcer's voice on the George Lucas college movie THX 1138. So a very early sort of incarnation there. And um, he also went on to do a lot of voice acting as well. Uh, But to recap... Charles Emerson Winchester III, the rather pompous but lovable character, more or less, on MASH between 1977 and 1983. Um, Mr. Stiers was born on October the 31st in 1942 and passed away on March the 3rd. He also played the Reverend Gene Purdy in The Dead Zone uh, on District not District 9, uh, in the Perry Mason movie series. He was the district attorney. Um, Because of his voice acting, string to his bow, he also played in the English dub of Porco Rosso as Grandpa Piccolo and also as the narrator in My Neighbour, the Yamadas, My Neighbours. You also know his voice from uh, the Beauty and the Beast movie, the animated one, as Cogsworth, the clock. He was in... Atlantis, The Lost Empire, 
as the voice of Fenton Q. Harcourt. Played the Penguin at least once in one of the Batman movies, uh, possibly the Batwoman one, I'm not sure which one. Um, was also a character in Star Trek Next Generation, one shot, where he played a character called Timosin. And uh, was an ongoing character in Stargate Atlantis, a character called Oberoff. He was in a, a, a Justice League of America television movie pilot that didn't um, go anywhere as the Martian Manhunter and appeared in several shows like Ray Bradbury's Theatre and The Outer Limits and ALF. That's the, uh, one of the new Outer Limits, not the old original one. Um, one episode that I'm of a, a show called Frasier, which of course uh, has its own long-running hit success like MASH, uh, he actually turned up as um, uh, a research assistant, a former research assistant um, <laughs> of uh, Martin Crane's wife, Hester. And he visited Seattle where the show was set and he was so pompous and stuck up in his personality that Marty got to wondering whether or not he actually was um, the father of Fraser and Niles. Uh, I just thought that was such a, a wonderful tribute to the, um, the Winchester character. Since, of course, um, David Ogden Steyer's character of Major Winchester, they did think of it as uh, part of the inspiration for the creation of the Frasier character on Cheers, which, of course, then got rolled over into the, uh, the Frasier series itself. <laughs> so, funnily enough, Winchester was from Boston too, while Cheers was set in Boston. <laughs> um, I think I liked the quote that he had, uh, people ordinarily don't think of their orchestras as important as we'd like them to be. People don't care about their friends and neighbours who sit down to commit excellence three or four times a year, but they will go see the tall, bald guy with free names from television. <laughs> uh, perhaps the, uh, the role sat lightly and heavily upon his shoulders of playing one of those iconic television characters. David Ogden Stiers, no longer with us. So remembering David Ogden Stiers' musical side. That's it for Zero G today. And we've got Joe Brenatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thanks a lot for listening to Zero G. And we'll be back next week. Uh, is it Labor Day next week? Oh, I think it might very well be. Um, hmm, there's a question for you. Where are all of the blue-collar superheroes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.